Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. A small federal agency has launched an initiative to strengthen a highly specialized class of museums in the United States. The Institute of Museum and Library Services is taking in internship applications from American Latino museums to, in its words, strengthen their institutional capacity. Here with details of the program, the Institute's Deputy Director for Museum Services, Laura Huerta Migas. Ms. Migas, good to have you with us. Great to be with you, Tom. And I have to begin with the Institute of Museum and Library Services. In 16 and a half years of hosting this show, I don't think this agency has ever been on. And I like to kid people, I know everything there is to know about the federal government, but I don't know about this institute. So let's begin with what the institute is all about, because I suspect there are other feds that don't know. You're not the first one to be hearing about us for the first time, but we're hoping that's going to be a rarer occurrence as we move forward. IMLS, the Institute of Museum and Library Services, is an independent executive branch agency. We consider ourselves one of the three sister cultural agencies, along with the National Endowment for the Arts and the National Endowment for the Humanities. We are the federal government's largest funder of libraries and museums and function primarily as a grant-making agency. And you also have an external board drawn from people that are operating in museums and libraries, which is a little bit unusual. That's correct. We do have a presidentially appointed board, the National Museum and Library Services Board, that is made up of 20 to 22, depending on the time of year, representatives and leaders from the library and museum sectors. And the grant making that you do, what's the rough total that goes out every year? So right now, our appropriations are right around $257 million a year to the nation's libraries and museums. About two-thirds of our funding goes out through our grants to states programs that funds libraries, public libraries, primarily at the state level. And then the balance of our funding is disseminated through competitive grant programs. And about 53 million of those dollars are dedicated to museum competitive grant programs. And looking at museums in the United States, is it fair to say that they are becoming more specialized or that more specialized focused museums are springing up? I mean, that's what I see from what I read, but you tell me what the trends are. Sure. I might say that museums are becoming much more community focused and really the services in IMLS, Museum and Library Services, is really referring to the fact that our agency funds that public service function of both museums and libraries. And so what we are seeing is that there are more museums that are really coming up from the grassroots that are community established, community curated, and are often telling the stories of specific communities. And when I say communities, that's a really broad term. Sometimes it's a neighborhood. And sometimes it is, again, based in specific cultural heritages as well. Interesting. So is one of the challenges of these museums then to get people not from the neighborhood to stop in and take a look? I would say yes to that. And, you know, most people don't know that the United States is actually very unique in the world that we have community-based museums. 
In most other countries, museums are government entities, you know, they're funded by states, by the federal government, and their content is really curated that way as well. And the United States museum community is quite different and quite localized. And so it makes for a really rich marketplace, but it means that the ways of supporting those museums is also really distributed and diverse. And that presents both opportunities and challenges for these institutions. And there are privately owned museums that are open to the public. Are those sometimes eligible for federal grants? Actually, not in our program. So IMLS only funds nonprofit museums that are open to the public at least 120 days a year. And nonprofit can include 501c3 independent institutions, as well as museums that are on college campuses or even parts of other types of agencies and organizations like hospitals, etc. Must be nonprofit. It could be in private hands, but nonprofit. Correct. We are speaking with Lauda Huerta Migas, Deputy Director for Museum Services at the Institute of Museum and Library Services. And let's get to the program now where you are looking at internships and fellowships for those from Latino museums. Tell us more about what's going on. So this new program, whose acronym is OMIFI, the American Latino Museum Internship and Fellowship Initiative, is our first standalone funding program out of a brand new appropriation we received as part of the establishment of the National Museum of the American Latino in 2020. And as part of the establishment of that museum, In the legislation, there is a section that creates a new grant program to support American Latino museums. And this actually follows a pattern started with the establishment of the National Museum of African American History and Culture, which also created a similar grant program to support African American focused museums here at IMLS. All right. And this sounds like fellowships, internships doesn't sound like grants. So what is the actual program designed to do here? Thank you so much for that question. Yes, we are not funding individual fellowships and internships. What we are funding in this grant program are actually partnerships between universities and museums to create fellowships and internships that are focused on Latino studies, American studies, to really help build that pipeline and workforce that has expertise in sharing, preserving, and educating around the contributions of Latinos to the American story. Because the release mentions the increase in capacity of these museums. So it sounds like an increase in the human capital capacity of museums. That's correct. The grassroots nature of many of these institutions means that they are not often able to access or have visibility as a future employer to students and scholars that are creating these careers and expertise in Latino culture. And so we really see this program as a way to accelerate the connections and the career pipeline between these institutions and then the students that universities are supporting in these studies. So the grants would go to these smaller institutions who would then create fellowships and internships for people studying Latino culture. 
That's correct. And all of the internships and fellowships that are established as part of these programs are paid internships and fellowships. This is part of the requirements of the grant program so that it really is setting up a trajectory for real employment. And it gives the institutions time to really understand and flex so that they're ready to support those future professionals. And do you monitor how the museums, such as the Latino museums or any kind of specialized community museums, to ensure that they have some reasonable way of displaying things in a way that is historically accurate, that honors what happened in reality, but on the other hand, is viewable and digestible by everybody? So I would say that there's yes and no. Our grantees are all required to provide regular reporting to us throughout the life of their grant. But as a grant maker, IMLS is not an editor of the content. However, in this program, we also do strongly encourage that they include an external evaluator throughout the program that is helping to serve as that third-party reflector on the success and the challenge of implementation of the program. Right, because you can present history, for example, in terms of verbs of what people did, but you can leave the adverbs out and let people judge for themselves. Yeah, and that's really part of the learning process as we learn about how to bring scholarship from the university um, and from a really sometimes theoretical environment to translating that for public education and knowledge. And we really see that as a really important place for building capacity and, again, giving the opportunity for emerging professionals to learn that side by side with the leaders of these community-based institutions that have really been the stewards of these very important life experiences and histories. And can these grants cover museums that want to increase capacity for being good museums in the sense that they can house and preserve artifacts? Because if you, say, have an old piece of art or an ancient document or 300-year-old document, those take specific technical treatment to make sure that they stay preserved, and maybe small museums need help on that front also. This particular program does not cover what we would call collection stewardship. All of those needs that you mentioned fall under that umbrella. However, we do offer eight other museum programs, about half of which have opportunities for museums to get that specific support around improving the management and preservation of their collections. And so there is an overlap in eligibility, and we often have museums that are successful in more than one of our programs to support these different specific needs. What else do people who might want to apply for these grants need to know? Our deadline is March 1st. And the grant amounts are from 100000 to $750,000. And you have a public event to uh, talk more about it. We do. We are holding a webinar on January 17th. And you can register to attend that webinar on our website, imls.gov. Lauda Huerta Migas is Deputy Director for Museum Services at the Institute of Museum and Library Services. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. 
Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Now. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance and I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across 
org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it? And building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight... I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision, and it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so... That was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to 
very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce, because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going, um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because 
first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So, I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's... Uh, It's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.